Well, once again, uh, we find ourselves in the shadow of another election, waiting for votes to be tabulated, results to be certified, uh, waiting uh, for what could be or might be, maybe even anticipating what could be uh, changes. And even though there are things that are still left unknown when it comes to some races across the country and even some places at the local level, uh, something that we can know for certain uh, that was evidenced again this year is that many people in America struggle with how to disagree in a way that neither compromises our core convictions uh, or uh, destroys the person with whom we disagree. Uh, we just struggle with that. We, we struggle if there's a disagreement. If, if, we, uh, if our core convictions conflict with somebody else's, uh, we struggle to navigate that without also demeaning and hurting those with whom we disagree. And I'm not talking just about hurting feelings. Uh, it's easy when you disagree with someone for someone to be offended that you don't agree with them. I'm talking about something more than that. When we use intentionally harsh words to tear down somebody else, or even worse, uh, we do it with our actions. And I feel like that's been played out once again uh, on the stage of this election cycle. But it's not just national politics where we struggle, is it? It happens at the local level. It happens in your place of work. Uh, it happens in our school boards. It happens in our homes. It happens in our schools. It happens between husbands and wives. It happens between parents. It happens between parents who are, are, are having a split or enduring or engaging in a split parenting situation. It, it happens between siblings. It happens between friends. We, we struggle with how to disagree in a way that doesn't cause us to compromise our core convictions, but neither does it cause us to intentionally hurt, destroy, and harm the image of God in someone else. And if we're honest, we struggle with that even in the church, in God's redeemed community of people. We disagree and we struggle with holding on to this conviction. I don't want to change. I feel like this is what God wants. And yet, how do we do that in a way that doesn't tear down somebody else? If you've been journeying with us in this series on Acts, you know we're in a mini-series on the Holy Spirit right now, and you may be wondering, what on earth does disagreement have to do with the Holy Spirit? If you're not wondering that, that's the question I want you to have in your minds, and I want to I help answer that question. What we find in the history of God's people in the, in the church um, from Jesus' resurrection and on, there are moments, there are times, there are seasons when those who honestly and sincerely are trying to follow Jesus are in conflict with one another. And so often those conflicts occur because both people or both groups of people sincerely feel like God wants them to do something, but it's opposed and in conflict with what the other person or the other group wants. And when we don't manage that conflict well, it results in a lot of hurt and the reputation even of God and Jesus is diminished in the world. When, as we've been looking at the Holy Spirit, we have just one week left next week in our series on the Holy Spirit. We've seen so far that the Holy Spirit really needs to have an equal seat at the table. When we think of the Godhead, uh, God and who he is, we, we see throughout history, throughout scripture, that God reveals himself um, 
in, in, in these three distinct yet equal and subordinate and working together roles we call the Trinity of God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so often we focus on God the Father and Jesus the Son, but because there's a lot of mystery surrounding the Holy Spirit, we kind of just kind of uh, leave him in a back room somewhere. And so the hope in this series is to bring the Holy Spirit in and let him have an equal seat at the table. And that's important because we see as we study scripture, as we look into the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is, is how God comes to live inside of us. He, he is God within us to, to renovate us, to, 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 to work on our attitudes and our desires and our beliefs and our character, to refine it, to be more like Jesus. He's, he's the renovating force in our life to shape us to become more like Jesus. But he also wants to work through us as he works in us and shapes us and transforms us. He wants to work through us to bring the good news of Jesus throughout the whole world so other people can come to understand who Jesus is and the hope that he brings and what it means for their life and their meaning and their purpose, their hope. And so we've been looking at these aspects of the Holy Spirit, but what happens when the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in me, the Holy Spirit through you and the Holy Spirit through me, somehow the Holy Spirit seems to be leading us into a place of conflict. You sense God saying, do this. But what I sense God saying is in opposition to that. What do we do when those moments come? And, and they happen far more than we often acknowledge. It happens between people in small groups. It happens between people who are earnestly, sincerely praying, God, what do you want for our church? What do you want for this relationship? What do you want for this circumstance? What do we do when we feel um, the Spirit leading us, but it puts us into conflict? And I'm so thankful that God's Word in the book of Acts and throughout it gives us a great deal of wisdom when it comes to how to navigate those places where the Holy Spirit seems to be leading us into conflict. And I just want to take you on a journey in Acts to, to help you see um, where it shows up there and what we can learn from it. So if you have your Bibles, find Acts chapter 19. We're primarily going to hang out between Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21, but the bulk of what we do here early will be in chapters 19, 20, and 21. When we get to Acts chapter 19, Paul, who has uh, become this devout, this devoted follower of Jesus, uh, is journeying on another one of his missionary journeys to help proclaim the good news uh, wherever he goes. He wants people to come to see Jesus as he has, to come to know the hope that he has. He wants other people to see that God has made a way through Jesus to restore what was broken and what is broken by sin. And so he's in Ephesus, he's working, and if you read the account in, in Acts chapter 19, we're not going to read the account, you'll see that um, there's a lot of success in Ephesus. Uh, there are a lot of people who come to know Jesus. There are people who become disciples of Jesus. There's incredible fruit that's happening through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. But you also see that it had its pain points. There are people who are opposed. There's opposition. There are things to navigate. There's even a riot that we read about at the end of Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. But at some point in Paul's ministry, and if we were to fast forward to Acts chapter 20 in an address that he gives to the elders of the church at Ephesus, we find that Paul had spent close to three years in Ephesus. And at some point towards the end of that time, this is what he says, Acts chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. 
And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So at some point in his ministry in Ephesus, Paul decides to go to Jerusalem. That may not seem significant to you. That may not seem important to you. But what we learn as we continue on into Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21 is it wasn't just Paul deciding, hey, you know what? I want to go to Jerusalem. Uh, I hear the food's good there. Um, There's a reason why he wants to go to Jerusalem. And if you move into Acts chapter 20, you'll find in this address he gives to the Ephesian elders that this is the reason why he has to go to Jerusalem. This is verses 22 through 24. Paul speaks to them. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul has a clear sense of his mission, of God's calling on his life. And he tells us that the reason why he decided to go to Jerusalem is not of his own doing. What does he say in verse 22? And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. That word compelled is really interesting. If you're reading from a different version, it might say bound or constrained. Uh, It's this picture of, of being chained. Paul will use the same word to speak of being in chains for Christ. He is, he is bound. When you are bound, when you are wrapped up, when you are roped in, where you are chained in, who has control over you? Someone else, right? It's the person who's chained you. It's the person who's bound you. It's the person who's constrained you. Paul says that I am bound, I am constrained, I am compelled. The Spirit of God is the one moving me. He's the one leading me to Jerusalem. And he looks back at his ministry, he says, all along the way, the Holy Spirit's been warning me. You're going to face hardship. You're going to be imprisoned. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I know the Holy Spirit is leading me. He has this deep conviction that the Spirit of God is saying, Paul, you've got to go to Jerusalem. Like, like, you read what's happening in, in Acts here, and there's no, there's no room for, like, debate. Like, Paul clearly feels that the Holy Spirit is wanting to take him and lead him to Jerusalem. We, we know that Paul's a follower of Jesus. We know he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 21, we find more disciples of Jesus who had the Holy Spirit. Because each of us, as we respond to Jesus in faith, as we, go to follow, as we come to follow him, We follow him in faith. We're baptized into him, and his spirit lives inside of us. So uh, these disciples have the spirit. But look at what's different. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. After we had torn ourselves away from them, so Paul continues with his companions to make his way to Jerusalem. After we'd torn ourselves away from them, he had this deep, intimate relationship with the Ephesian elders. It was hard to leave them, to know he wasn't going to see them again. He says, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and we set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. Luke's just giving us all these incredible eyewitness notes of the journey. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there, and we stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. So Paul continues to make his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, the ship docks at Tyre. They unload their stuff. They're waiting for the next ship to move them on down the coast closer to Jerusalem. And so they spend seven days visiting with the disciples of Jesus in Tyre. And what does it say the disciples of Jesus in Tyre feel led by the Spirit to do? It says, through the Spirit, verse 4, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So here are men and women, faithful to God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of them, just like it does Paul. And yet they sense very clearly, they have a strong conviction, and they need to urge Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So we have Paul, deeply convicted, feels the Spirit is leading him to go to Jerusalem. We have other followers of Jesus, deeply convicted, who say, no, don't go to Jerusalem. So what gives? How do you navigate that conflict? How do you navigate that that seeming contradiction? Does this in some way indicate to us that when the Spirit of God leads us and stirs us and works in us and wants to work through us, that there might be places where the Spirit of God contradicts himself? That's not the case at all. But in order to understand that, we have to follow kind of a formula we see in Scripture when it comes to conflict and how we perceive the leading of the Spirit in our lives. And I just want to give that to you. The first and most important thing is that we need to walk humbly. When, when there is conflict uh, and we have two people or two parties that both sense strongly that the Spirit of God is leading them to do something, uh, we need to walk humbly. And here's why we need to walk humbly, because humility uh, in the biblical understanding, in the Christian understanding, is not that self-deprecating, self-loathing humility we see in the world, where if I just put myself down enough, people will think that I'm humble. It's not a false humility. Humility in Scripture uh, is modeled by Jesus, and it's the right understanding of oneself. True humility understands, first and foremost, who God is, And that determines who they are and how they interact with other people. So true humility says, God, who are you? And so if I say, God, you're leading me to do something, and Holy Spirit, I feel like you are compelling me to do something, then I have to recognize that that God knows more than I know, even if I have that strong sense, that strong sense of conviction or that strong sense of direction. So I have to understand that even as though I feel those things, that my understanding is still limited because I'm not God. I'm not. Now, some of us would like to be, but, but we're not. But that also helps me understand that if, if it's a right perspective of God, then I also understand that, that God is not a God who contradicts himself. So if I'm at odds with somebody else and we both sense the Spirit of God leading us to something that's in conflict with one another, then we have to understand that God is not one who is in conflict with himself. The Spirit of God cannot be in conflict with himself. I think of the words of Jesus when he's speaking. He talks about how a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would Jesus teach that unless he, as the Son of God, understood that? There's unity within the Godhead. Beyond that, I think of Paul's words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, uh, he writes these words. He says that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. The word deny also is translated contradict. When he is 
When we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because God can't contradict himself. Faithfulness. I'm dying. Maybe. I'm, I'm not dying. My, my batteries are dying. I am. We'll take a pause and get new batteries real quick. The beauty of technology. It said full signal a minute ago. now awesome thank you sorry about that the, the beauty of technology now I remind myself where I am yeah we can't so just as the when it comes to God's character if he is faithful and he can't deny himself in that attribute it would, the same would be true for all of who God is and what God does he can't contradict himself so if I start by walking humbly I understand that if I'm in conflict with somebody else and I feel the spirit of God leading me to do something I recognize who he is He's God, I'm not. So he has answers that I don't have. He's not in contradiction with himself. That means that if I'm in conflict with somebody else, then there must be something that one of us or both of us isn't understanding fully yet. When I walk humbly, if that takes place, then I need to go to his word to make sure that what I'm sensing is not in conflict or not a contradiction to his words because the spirit of God, we know, inspired these words so he would not go against what the word of God says, I hinted at this last week, is that the spirit of God will never lead us to do something that contradicts the word of God or the character of God as revealed in scripture. And so I can go to the word and I can say, okay, I really sense God leading me to do this. No, you really sense God leading you to do that. Well, does God's word say that one of us is likely wrong? And God's word is a useful tool. It's a useful litmus test that often will reveal whether or not the conviction that I feel is more me or more he. Is it more me or is it more God? We, we see this even in the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, this really interesting scenario unfolds. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have just, uh, they're returning from this first missionary journey. They've come back from uh, the province of Galatia. They, they've seen a great response uh, to the good news of Jesus. And part of that response is, is that people who don't have any Jewish ancestry, don't have any Jewish lineage, they weren't Jews, they were, they were pagan, what we would call pagan believers, um, they, they come to follow Jesus. And word gets back to the people in Judea and Jerusalem, and, and they're concerned because these Gentile believers, these new people coming to faith that no, have, have no um, Jewish background, they're not following the full law of Moses. Um, most notably, they're not being circumcised. And so these uh, leaders in Jerusalem and Judea are like, no, we need to make sure that when people come to faith, even if they have no Jewish heritage, no Jewish background, that they follow the whole law of Moses. And so this disagreement unfolds. They're passionate about what needs to happen. Paul and Barnabas are passionate about what needs to happen. And so what are we gonna do? Where are we gonna go? Paul knows the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he describes himself as. Where do we go? So they, not only do they check the law of Moses, the word of God, but then they go to the apostles. They enlist the help of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. 
Why the apostles? Because they had walked with Jesus. They knew the teachings of Jesus. They knew what Jesus had said, what Jesus had spoken. And we even see Peter in Acts chapter 15 lean in and give the perspective from a man who's walked with Jesus. They're checking these convictions. They're checking these leanings and these leadings with what God says and what Jesus has said. And when it comes down to it, they, they have a response. Again, crafted with humility. Uh, Peter and the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem send a letter back that Paul and Barnabas can share in the churches. Uh, that they're going to. And, and this is something they write in Acts chapter 15, verse 28. In the letter, they wrote this. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then they list the requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. What's not mentioned are um, specific holidays, circumcision. And how did they get to that conclusion? It says it seemed good. It seemed pleasing to the Holy Spirit that we wouldn't burden you with any more than this. And even in that, you see the humility. Here are men striving to trust and follow Jesus, who have walked with Jesus, who have heard his teachings, who know the law of Moses, and they give a response when there's this conflict. When we walk humbly knowing who God is and who we are in light of who God is, when we test our convictions and our leadings and our directives from the Spirit with God's Word, often He clarifies for us what needs to happen. But even if that doesn't bring the clarity we need, you can seek godly counsel. That's what Paul and Barnabas do. They, 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 they reach out and they say, okay, these men walk with Jesus. Let's get their perspective on it. You'll find that if you're in conflict and what you're feeling doesn't conflict with the word of God, if it doesn't compromise and it recognizes who God is, then when you seek godly counsel, there can be perspective that helps you as you navigate those places of conflict. It's something that's lost among many of us today. We would rather put on a 30-minute podcast or watch a YouTube video and get advice from someone there versus going to the flesh and blood people around us who we can look to and see that their lives are bearing fruit in keeping with righteousness. It's not that watching a YouTube video or listening to a podcast is necessarily wrong, but you have no idea what the fruit of that person's life is other than what you hear in that moment or see in that moment. And when you start adjusting what you're watching and you're hearing to the algorithms that places like YouTube use just to feed you more content that you agree with or that you've watched before, that can be a dangerous thing to take all of your advice from someone that you don't really know. But what happens when we seek the advice of people who we know and we look to and their lives look like Jesus? They can provide that godly counsel to help us in those places where we have conflict and we disagree and we feel the Spirit leading us in ways that are opposed to one another. When we walk humbly, uh, we'll honor one another. You know, when you look at true humility, it's recognizing who God is, who we are, and who others are in light of who God is. And true humility says, I'm not going to dishonor you in the midst of the conflict. I'm not going to tear you down. I'm not going to destroy you. And I love this example of Paul because when he and the disciples entire have this conflict, they share through the Spirit, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem. 
Paul says, I'm, I'm still going. But we don't see a fight ensue. We don't see people get mad and take off to another church in town. We, we don't see, um, you know, them, them gossip about Paul. What do we see? They travel with Paul down to the beach. They accompany him. And they pray with him. There's still unity within the church, even when there are these conflicting leadings of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you walk humbly. There's, there's still unity within God's people. Paul would actually write about this. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. It's a whole section that talks about unity and what can lead to unity. But here's what verses one through three say. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. When we walk humbly, even when we sense the Spirit leading us to do separate and opposing things, God has a way of preserving unity in his church and accomplishing great things. When we walk humbly, God uses the recognition of who he is and who we are and checking it with his word and getting, seeking godly counsel and choosing to honor one another. He uses all those things to help reveal that sometimes, if we're honest, what I feel so strongly about that I feel God is leading me to do, sometimes, unfortunately, is selfish. It's just what I want to do. But God uses that process of walking humbly to refine that for us while preserving the unity in his church. And as you and I look out at a world, we look out at a country that desperately needs to know how to disagree without compromising, without compromising our core convictions. And for a follower of Jesus, that core conviction is that he is the way, the truth, and life. Without compromising the truth, how do we disagree without compromising our conviction, without compromising the truth? Not your version of truth and my version of truth, but God's version of truth. And without also intentionally hurting and harming and destroying the person who we disagree with. And God shows us a way forward and it begins by walking humbly. And when we walk humbly, if, if there's nothing there that then contradicts and it's in alignment with scripture and godly counsel says it's fine, you're still honoring one another, what do you do then? Well, you obey. You obey the Spirit's leading. What did Paul do? He kept going to Jerusalem. Yep, I don't agree with you. <laughs> you want me not to go, but I am still going to go to Jerusalem. And what happens? God is honored and the good news is shared. And eventually Paul goes to Rome and the good news is shared even with Caesar and Caesar's council. But there's this really neat story that unfolds at the end of Acts chapter 15. It follows that whole letter that Peter and the apostles helped write for Paul and Barnabas. I'll just read it to you. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. Uh, we learned earlier in Acts that, 
this John, this John Mark, as he's often referred to, is Barnabas's cousin. So Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him. Why? Because he deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. You can look to Acts chapter 13. You can see that John Mark joins them. It's Paul, it's Barnabas, it's John Mark. They're going to proclaim the good news and they get to Pamphylia and, uh, and John Mark is like, deuces, I'm gone, right? He's, he's out. So Paul didn't want to take him because he deserted them before. And look at verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement. That's a phrase in the Greek that means it was a highly emotional disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. As I was studying this, I was struck by multiple uh, scholars, as they wrote commentary on this passage, said that while Luke at sometimes uses negative vocabulary, there's nothing negative in this vocabulary. Luke is showing us how God used this disagreement between two people who were doing great things but had conflicting views. God used that to, to spread the word to an even greater number of people. More evidence that we know this wasn't a permanent disagreement, a divisive disagreement, is that Paul later mentions Barnabas in his letter to the Corinthians. You, you won't see Paul spend time with the Corinthians until later on in Acts. Like, that hasn't even happened yet. So that shows that the relationship with Paul and Barnabas continued. He commends even Barnabas to them. You can read in 2 Timothy. You can read in Colossians. I think it's chapter 4. You can read in Philemon, verse 24 that John Mark is actually named among the people that are with Paul when he's in prison for his faith. So here we had two great beacons of faith um, sharing ministry together. There is a conflict, there's a disagreement. It's highly emotional. They both sense that something different needs to happen that's in opposition to one another. But because they walk humbly and they remain obedient, what does God do? He uses that to help even more people come to know Jesus. And disciples of Jesus, if we would learn to disagree in a way, especially as it relates to what the Spirit is leading us to do, that doesn't compromise that core conviction or the truth, and neither does it destroy or harm or demean the other person, we will find that God launches people out and, and people move on with grace to new endeavors, and they move on and they're part of other communities of faith and other churches, and that and the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. And many people come to know who he is. But we've got to learn how to disagree even when we feel the direction of the Holy Spirit. So walk humbly. Remember who he is and who you are and who they are in light of who he is. Check your convictions with the word of God. If you still need clarity, invite godly counsel, people whose lives reflect the maturity we see in Jesus. Honor one another above yourselves is what Paul writes. And then obey and trust that God is so much bigger and so much greater. And as we listen to his spirit, he'll do amazing things. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for just how honest it is and how 
intentional even your spirit is as you lead Luke to preserve these stories that, that show this apparent conflict and how people are trying to honor you and follow you, God. And I thank you for the example of your son. I thank you for the wisdom of your word that points us to be people who walk humbly and strive to obey and trust that you are doing a greater thing than we can begin to imagine. Would you lead us and guide us to be people who follow your spirit, loving you and loving others in a way that honors your heart? And it's in your name we pray and trust, in the name of Jesus, amen. Will you please stand with us?